How much do you know about your coffee before it comes out of your curry coffee machine or handed to you by the barista at your favorite coffee shop? We hardly have any stories told by the coffee producer or the person living in that country and experiencing all the emotions that go with working in the coffee industry. From the growing of the coffee, processing and selling it, this story has always been from the point of view of the buyer, the roaster, the trader, the foreigner looking in and excited about the new adventure of experiencing the place and its people. Hardly do we have stories, especially from this continent, that clearly touch on the perception of this continent and the real story of doing business in these environments. This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. That was an excerpt from The Coffee Milk Blood by today's guest, Vava Anguini. In 2009, Vava started Vava Coffee Limited, a social enterprise that exports, roasts, and consults on coffee value chains. Her main aim is to contribute to better prospects for coffee communities and the industry as a whole. In this episode, you'll learn how she navigates as a woman in a male-dominated industry, how to be a changemaker as a female entrepreneur challenging the status quo in the coffee industry. Vava, welcome to the WTF Podcast. Thank you, Michelle. Lovely and excited to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Happy to have you. Let's get into it. What motivated you to start Vava Coffee and what problem are you solving? Many things, but I guess the, I think the most crucial thing that led me to divert from the intended path is curiosity. It was having, I would say, the privilege to be exposed to the Western world, because I know not everyone gets to ride on the adventure of life like I have. But, you know, the days of being a student in Canada, drinking coffee from Tim Hortons and studying in a library and then starting asking questions. It was the questions around the socioeconomic sort of imbalances I saw from looking at my own grandmother who used to grow coffee when she was still around and, um, and all the farmers that I knew who grow coffee in Kenya and then looking at the price of coffee in Canada and in the U.S. and then just wondering why farmers were so unhappy and why farmers wanted to approve coffee and farmers were literally saying that coffee doesn't pay. So I think that just led me down a path of asking question after question and then it led to a business later on in life. So tell me about that business. How did Vava Coffee come to life? I understand your grandmother was a coffee grower, your experience as a student, drinking Tim Hortons coffee in Canada. Now, that being the motivation, how do you get from that point to start in Baba Coffee? All right, great. I forgot the last part of your question. What problem we're trying to solve? How I got to Baba Coffee was identifying a problem for my own community, which is farmers are not also one, farmers are not recognized in the in the end part of the storytelling as well as farmers are being underpaid for a crop that or a, I don't want to call coffee a commodity even if it's treated as a commodity for me it's a specialized crop just like wine that people should be paying good prices for the quality of the bean however coffee has been heavily commoditized and sold as something that also loses its traceability oftentimes 
So I saw an issue with both the traceability and the price that was being paid to coffee farmers in Kenya and try to work a way around both of those two issues. One, how can we better represent farmers in Kenya and how can consumers on the other end connect with the producers through better storytelling, better traceability, but also how can we make farmers keep growing coffee? If you delve into the coffee sector and the export of coffee, you'll realize that it is, it's an industry that requires hefty amounts of capital. It's, so I went in with naivety, but I say that naivety actually brought me to where I am. It was better to be naive and dream big and be a racehorse that actually got me to where I am. So. It's a specific problem that you're solving for coffee producers with Baba. Better pay and dignified storytelling. I'll say I'm solving two issues, two main issues that are pertinent to my heart is how can we have a more dignified way of representing producers other than a colonial approach to storytelling? Because oftentimes, like you may have read that excerpt from the book, the story is always told by the person that's doing the hunting, the person that's coming to source from Africa, from Latin America. And the producer's voice is often forgotten. And there is always the power play within this. There's always that power play dynamic whereby it's an extractive type of industry rather than one that is symbiotic for both parties that, that are in this transaction. And of course, what's close to my heart is, I don't want to call it fair because I believe we've done more than fair for a lot of the producers we work with. And in as much as people identify and recognize words like fair trade, I believe the world as a whole, even consumers can do better than fair because producers require more than fair. Producers require honest pay, like they require that their cost of production is covered. It's a business like any other business. Nobody should be running a business and going at a loss. So, yeah. So as a woman in agribusiness, tell me about your entrepreneurship journey. What are some of the challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? Well, first of all, I would say starting from the sheer fact that I'm in agribusiness is, of course, even a sore fact for my entire family. When I studied math, I'm a mathematician and statistician and mathematician and economist. So I grew up in a family of a middle-class Kenyan family that I was never expected to say, hey, I'm going to go work with farmers. That was not the expectation. So problem number one was me ditching all the degrees that I got to get into agribusiness. So that did not sit well with my family. And it's an issue that to date is still an issue. Although I'd say nowadays they respect me a lot more just seeing the progress and everything that I've managed to overcome and do. The other thing is, of course, being, I think being female in a lot of societies is in itself just presents a, be it a threat or I don't know, like it makes certain people and men and women alike, I would say that the problem is really not with just the men that are in the industry. It's when you're a woman that really knows what you want and how you want to go about it, and you're not afraid to express your opinion, it's often a problem with a lot of people because we're raised in a society, especially in Africa, where a lot of us as 
young girls growing up, you're taught to be polite. You're taught not to raise your voice. You're taught to not be so opinionated so that maybe in the end you can get a husband and I don't know, have kids and whatever. So those are the things you're told growing up, but then you go explore, discover the world and you come back with an idea to start a business and in coffee, which is a white man's world, very patriarchal. And even in Kenya, a lot of the coffee companies are run by white men. It's multinationals that really run the trade and all of them headed by white male figures. So starting out in Kenya as a woman that wanted to export coffee and being a Kenyan woman myself was really like, and was shocked and surprised and like, how does she think she's going to navigate this? So, <clears throat> but to, to a lot of people's surprise, I, I'm not going to lie. It's not been easy, to be honest. It's, and of course I've had to also collaborate with peers in the sector to actually be where I am because there's only so much I can do as a, a small medium enterprise, given I also don't have access to the capital that the bigger companies have. And in this business, if you're not doing volumes, if you're not putting yourself out there, then you're always, it's not just playing small, you're really not going to survive. Like you sell 20 bags and then shut your business and go home because it requires a lot of money to trade coffee. Right now we're in what is traditionally known as Kenya's prime coffee harvest season. It's called the main crop season where everyone is now looking towards ordering all the great Kenyans and all of that. There's a couple of things I've mentioned from capital to knowing what you want, but then just being perceived as know your place as a woman to walking the path that is less traveled and going against the green, which a lot of people do not expect a woman to do, especially a young, young or old, whatever you're, as a woman, you're really expected to follow a certain trajectory that leads you to a safe place whereby you risk nothing. You've got your regular salary. You've got a husband, you've got kids. The story that we're all told, I guess, growing up as young girls, and I would say the greatest, one of the greater obstacles that maybe is not really put out there is just racism within the industry. There's racism in coffee. And when you're a black woman and you're trying to sell coffee from Kenya, oftentimes some people don't believe that you know what you're doing because they feel like they would rather believe their fellow person, the expert living in Kenya who's running the multinational. They believe them more than someone who's grown up in that country trying to sell them the coffee because, you know, they apparently invented the coffee trade. They know Kenya better, apparently. So when I got into coffee, I learned the subtle nuances that I felt when I was in a room and people, you go, you're trying to market your company, you're going for a trade show, but people look at you as this young person who really, and they're like, I don't think she can manage the risk or whatever. So they bypass you and go buy coffee from someone they can have an easier conversation with. So I think a lot of people sometimes choose easier things rather than the right thing. And for me, I was, I've always tried to correct that and be like, you're choosing easy rather than right. So trying to correct those notions has been work. And my book is a product of all of those things I experienced as a woman in the coffee industry, being told you don't look like a producer, you're wearing too much lipstick, you're wearing clothes that are too glamorous for a social entrepreneur. And I was like, 
So how should social entrepreneurs dress? So all of those things, which people, I wonder how some people say certain things to women sometimes. I remember being criticized for wearing a red dress for a presentation to investors and the apparent coach, this was in Silicon Valley, and I think I read a snippet of it in my book, is pointed out that gave me the example between Steve Jobs and why he was taken seriously because he wore black and everything. And my red dress was just going to attract the wrong attention. And I was just like, Lord Jesus. Okay. This, so those are some of the things, a whole, it's a whole bunch of things, but yeah, those are some of the challenges. Well, daring women wear red. So there you go. <laughs> now, Thank you for recounting that experience. And I think this is a great segue into my next question since you brought up capital. What has been your fundraising or capital raising journey for Vava Coffee? I know it wasn't easy. Walk me through <laughs> that. Lord, that's outsizing. Uh, is hectic. I'm using a very subtle word. It is draining. It is demeaning sometimes. It is strenuous. It can lead to mental health problems because, and it's also, I would say like, if you don't have the tenacity or the resilience, it can really hit you the wrong way. So to go out day in, day out, selling your business, justifying why you need the money, and I would say that the worst part about fundraising most of the time is that you're talking to people who don't understand your industry. It's a bunch of people who have money. They don't even know what you're doing. They don't appreciate how you're doing it. They're just there. They have money and they're going to dictate the terms. And that is the saddest part about any of these kinds of fundraising that people market, be it fundraising for social entrepreneurs. I don't know, fill up, whatever. There's all kinds of names that come up. There's a new buzzword every day. Then they go down to narrow it down to women. And I'm just like, this, I swear, I had to take a break from fundraising. And I said, I don't think I, like, the way I have a coffee structured right now, I'm just like, I don't think I ever want to go back out there asking for money from people. The lesson I learned later on after so many years was, it is better to talk to someone who is in your industry, who knows what the coffee world requires. That way they respect how quickly you need the money, how much money you're asking for, and they can help you navigate all the issues with funding so that you don't also dig a hole for yourself. And because I'm like, there's kinds of funding that were offered to us as Vava Coffee that I should have said no to, but I said yes. And then it became problematic because we needed the money, but I should have probably stepped back and said, you know what? No, we can scrap it for, or bootstrap it for a couple more months and then, and look for a better solution. But as an entrepreneur, because I also, I'm in a space in Kenya where we don't have that much access to capital, especially as women. If you're a single woman in Kenya trying to borrow from a bank, they will ask you all kinds of demeaning questions that they don't need to be asking professionally. Like, has your husband approved for you to like, or what happened? Like in my scenario, I remember this, I'll give you a quick example of, I'm a single mom and I remember banking with this bank for many years and getting to know the bank manager. And then he knew my daughter, like we'd always go in the bank. And so he had the audacity to ask me, 
One time when I went just asking for an overdraft, he's like, what about the father of the child? Does he know that you're asking for an overdraft? Can he help? I was so disgusted that I was just like, nah, this is not on. Fundraising is different also for entrepreneurs in the U.S., in Canada, and for people that live on the continent in Africa. And also, I believe in Latin America because I've had experience engaging with folks there as well. So for me, it's one of the toughest things as an entrepreneur and as a business owner to keep asking people for money. <laughs> if I could never go out asking for money, that would be the best thing. In essence, there are periods of how Vava Coffee's journey has happened that I've had to take massive breaks from going out. In fact, after so many years of doing the whole soca parading, I say it was me parading myself. You're like in a show and you make yourself pretty, you make your presentation pretty, and you go out just hitting people up for money and hoping they listen. But it's not been easy. And I feel this is some of the feedback that I gave some folks who asked for feedback when I went through some of those social entrepreneurial programs and everything. I was like, please bring investors on board that sort of have a clue about what certain industries require because, and I know that a lot of export-oriented coffee companies that have been funded by big VCs or whatever that later on collapsed because they just were not speaking the same language. It was just like, I've been funded at some of the highest levels of like government funding from outside of Kenya, but the fight that I had with our funding entities was you guys are just trying to tick a box and you don't understand our needs as entrepreneurs. When an entrepreneur says they need to pay suppliers, they need to pay producers, especially in Kenya, in seven days of beating for coffee, those guys were not, they would sit on our money for 60 days and we would incur fines. In the end, we pay the fines ourselves because they're just like, hey, it's government policy. What can we do? But I was like, we got into this relationship so that you guys can help us become better. And the report writing, the whatever, I came to understand that there's kinds of funding that I will never go after. Grant funding is not for everyone. There's certain sort of funds that I will never touch again. There is, there's a way that you can fill out folks when you're asking for money, like the kind of questions they ask. And I feel that as entrepreneurs, we don't ask enough questions. We just, we're there receiving or being bashed. Someone is like critiquing your business plan saying, this is not like, you need to add more data to this and whatever. And I'm just like, a lot of us entrepreneurs are also too shy or we're too nice about vetting the VCs and the investment funds because there's a whole power play situation there. And I think a lot of us don't ask the right questions or don't ask enough questions. And someone can be stringing you along for three, four months and then drop you like you didn't matter. And yet they've taken your time. You've had meeting after meeting after meeting. So after some, you go through certain experiences that just open up your mind and you're like, listen, this is not for me. I will not do this. Yeah, that's the short version of it. <laughs> I know I was listening patiently, but I know that could have gone on much longer because it's been an experience over a period of time. Something I learned from a wise person I recently interviewed on this podcast about 
how he realized that he was fundraising incorrectly and it was a mindset shift that was required. When he realized that you got to approach this thing where you are the big deal, right? You are the deal. You are the one presenting them with an opportunity to make money and not you being there to ask for money. I am presenting the opportunity to make money. And that's a mindset shift. And it's also a power shift, right? Where you're taking some of your power back. I'm not here on my knees. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm here presenting you an opportunity to make profits and a return on your investment. And I think that's a powerful shift, a really powerful shift. And when you were talking about bank loans and going to the bank and what that banker said to you, I wish I could act as if I'm surprised, but I've spent so many years working across Africa that I know that stuff happens. And someone listening to this might be like, all shocked and outraged, like, how can we ask for that? But unfortunately, that's an unfortunate reality for women entrepreneurs, particularly on the continent. But those things happen to women all over, getting inappropriate types of questions when they're just out there trying to run a business. Yeah. Mentioned Latin America. And so I think that's a good transition point to, for you to talk about gente, the, the, Del Futuro. Yeah. So Hente Del Futuro is another passion project and a company that I started with my Colombian partner, Alejandro, about five years ago. He had been running like boot camps in Medellin, introducing young people from coffee growing families to coffee to shift the balance and to help decommoditize coffee So he felt because he had also invested in Tanzania that we could replicate what was happening in Colombia to Africa. So we partnered up about four years ago and then sponsored 12 young women, six from Tanzania, six from Kenya, to introduce them to coffee knowledge. And because I always feel, going back to the story about power play and shifting power was, I feel like... The coffee industry has been so extractive for so long that it's important that the next generation, if we empower them to be more knowledgeable about the opportunities in coffee, it goes beyond the cultivating of coffee to the commercialization of coffee in a way that is profitable for producing countries. So that is the idea about Gente del Futuro, which means people of the future. And I recently carried on the work to Lamu, which is I would say Lamu is probably the equivalent of Ibiza in terms of the beauty of the island, but even better than Ibiza because it is still very pristine. It's an untouched part of the world with the still the depth of the Swahili culture that is in the place. So when you come to Lamu, you're coming to experience the people, the culture, the beauty of the beaches and the food of the place. And also just, I think the people also make it the more special. It's just humility. And the fact that there's no cars and all of that, and it's just donkeys and boats adds to that. So I decided to, after COVID, because during COVID, we were not able to do much work with Gente del Futuro, to move the coffee school that I had set up in in Kenya to the coast and target two things, the tourists that are coming to the island so that they can be the ones that are coming to the cafe, experiencing the coffee that the students are making and the baristas there, but also a community cafe that also speaks to the Muslim community. It's Lamu is predominantly Muslim. So we also wanted to create a space that 
both women, especially the women in this community can feel they can come hang out. And also most importantly, to give skills to the young people. There's a lot of tourism happening within the, along the Kenyan coast, but not enough skills are imparted to these people. It's not enough investment is made in educating coffee producers. So because it, the, the more knowledge you give people, the more powerful they become. So I feel like a lot of that has never really been done by the extractive part of this sector. So the idea is to give power and knowledge to the young people, but also producers and to make it a sustainable business. So I'm not just looking at a space that is purely giving, like the company is not just giving scholarships and whatever, but we're like, how can we give economic empowerment to the community? How can they earn money from the skills? And hence the community cafe that has become a success. We've been open three months, but we've been training the, the young people in Lamo for five months now. And uh, today we actually kicked off a great program with Joe Coffee in New York, just mentorship between folks that have been in coffee for years and with marvelous experience to these kids, because I believe cross-cultural exchanges are also super beneficial to all of us. Congratulations on the launch of the Community Cafe. Now, as we get ready to wrap up, tell me more about your book, Coffee Milk Blood. Well, Coffee Milk Blood is a work that I put out both out of frustration, but also love for the work that I've been doing. And I believe that, okay, I have a policy, like when something makes me so mad, I want to turn it into something positive that, and I didn't want to go out and just like rant and rave about colonialism, racism, just how women are treated in the industry. So I thought, why don't I share with not, and this book is just, is not tailored just for the coffee industry, but the coffee world has received it largely as a good piece of work that they reference for some of the questions they have about how producers are perceived. For me, it's a book that any young person, especially in Africa or any person of color who feels the world tries to pigeonhole them or put them in a box. They can reference and still dream and be audacious to, to do what they want to do, especially for women that want to be in business or women that just want to do their own thing. So the message for the book was a subtle way to try and educate folks that try and pigeonhole, be it a coffee producer, a black woman, a young person who's just out there trying to live their life and live their dream and do their thing. Because sometimes some conversations I've had with folks who are both in the industry or folks that I meet who are white folk, some of the questions they ask are just off. I'm putting it politely, like just questions that are off or some comments they make about women. And from the point where someone told me once that I'm, I don't dress like someone who works with producers, and this was in Seattle. I remember at a coffee show and someone just told me, no, I'm too, I'm dressed up too nice to be a coffee producer or be working coffee as a producer. So I was like, okay, let's just show you what we do in Africa. This is when you're on the farm, of course, you dress differently. But when we're going out, be it on occasions or Sunday best or whatever, and this is the beauty of Africa, we bring fashion, we bring beauty, we bring all of these things that the world celebrates came from the continent. So I wanted to put it out there, but also educate the audience on the fact that producers have voices and our voices need to be heard. And 
people should not be pigeonholed. Like we're different. Yes. And I don't have to fit in your box. So this is a story about us by us, as the book says on the cover. And for once, the story is being told from the point of view of someone in coffee from a producer's perspective and not from the gaze of the person sourcing the coffee who's usually white male or white female coming to Africa or coming to Latin America, taking photos and taking our story to the rest of the world without our voice being heard. So for me, it's just placing importance on the fact that producers' voices are important and this is how this is one way that we would like to be perceived, but we're many more things than what you think we are. Baba, I love that. And it's always so curious when people make statements on your attire and what you're supposed to look like because you work with farmers. If you're in Seattle at an event, you're not on the farm. What should you have worn to meet their expectation in such an environment? What motivates you, Baba, to continue carrying on the work? that you're doing with Baba Coffee and Health Today Futuro? For me, the greatest motivation has been, first and foremost, it's the producers who come back and say, thank you. The fact that there's people looking to work with us every day, but most importantly, when I find a farmer is happy or a young person is grateful for having encountered or met us and they're grateful for what they're learning, it's realizing that there's an importance in the work that we're doing when people come and say, thank you. I learned something. I'm glad we met. Stuff like that is what keeps me going. I wouldn't, the stress that has come with this job has been so much. I would have given up a long time ago. <laughs> the other thing, of course, if I could say two things, it's one, it's of course, those folks that always come back and say, hey, awesome, big up. You're doing amazing things. And also realizing that we're actually making a difference in the producer's paycheck. If I wasn't making a difference in any of these prices that I'm talking about that producers are getting, then I would not be in the business. The other thing, of course, is just realizing what my purpose is in life. I think the more that I got to know myself, the more that I've learned about who I am, and also realize that. I don't have to, you know, copy paste what other people are doing, my peers and whatever. Just knowing myself better has actually kept me going. I believe we're all here for a certain purpose and we have a mission to fulfill. So I'm still trying to finish that mission. Those are great concluding words, Baba. Thank you so much for stopping by the WTF podcast. To my listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't keep good content to yourself. If you enjoy this episode, let me know, write a review and share this episode with three friends because sharing is caring, right? So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast at its home on the Alive Podcast Network and make sure that you follow the podcast on Instagram at words of funding underscore and follow the podcast on LinkedIn at words of funding podcast and also follow me, your host of LinkedIn, Michelle J. McKenzie. New episodes stream on Fridays. See you then.